Hello, everybody. I'm Danny Boom Boom McCarthy. There's a man who leads a life of danger. To everyone he meets, he stays a stranger. With every move he makes, another chance he takes. Odds are he won't live to see tomorrow. Secret agent man, secret agent man. They're giving you a number and taking away your name. Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to the Story of Nowhere podcast. I'm your host, Daniel McCarthy, and I've got another short episode planned for you today. I want to talk just a little bit about historiography. But first, I'll get the standard housekeeping stuff out of the way. First off, I hope you enjoyed the supplemental episode that I released a little while ago, which was a recording of one of my Great Books Club meetings, in which we talked about Plato's Republic. All of us involved thought that it was a particularly stimulating meeting, so I hope you guys got something out of it, and like I said, I think that it pairs well with episode 10, The Lost Utopia of Socrates. Now, Alice and I also have another episode of They Say out up at storyofnowhere.com slash they say four, and in this episode we discuss the March-April 2021 issue of Foreign Affairs Magazine, the official journal of the Council on Foreign Relations. Now, I think this is a particularly good episode of They Say because we were able to broadly and succinctly assess the proposed direction of world politics. So we talk a little more about some neocons, we talk about complex interdependence, and of course, we talk about global technocracy, and most interestingly, in my opinion, cybernetic man-computer symbiosis in the form of diffuse power networks. So you're really going to want to check that out. Once again, storyofnowhere.com slash they say four. So that's what I've put out recently. As for what's coming up, as I mentioned in the last episode, the supplemental episode, I will soon be releasing The Realm of Isocrates, part two, which I recorded with Kevin Cole a while back. I'll also be releasing a show that I mentioned I was working on some time ago, which covers agrarian justice a short pamphlet written in the late 1790s by Thomas Paine. This ought to be a pretty interesting episode because I think it's going to challenge what a lot of people think they know about classical, or what I prefer to call Enlightenment, liberal philosophy. I'm also going to be releasing a show on a forgotten aspect of the origins of the British Empire, and in that episode I'll specifically be focusing on a really, really rare book that nobody knows about, that was written back in 1578 by Queen Elizabeth I's court astrologer. So be sure to check that one out if you're interested in learning more about the utopian Golden Age myth that serves as at least a partial basis for the creation and eventual domination of the British Empire. And lastly, I am still working on the Political Spectrum show. I really don't know how long that one's going to take. I'm hoping not too much longer. But it is a rather complicated subject now that I'm really digging into it. So, as soon as I can get that one finished, I will have it out. Okay, so now that that stuff's out of the way, let's get into the meat of the show. I want to talk about historiography. 
So to start, history is more than just mere facts about what happened in the past. If you crack open a history book, you don't just find pages and pages of bullet-pointed lists of names and dates. History is the weaving together of these sorts of facts in order to create a narrative that makes sense of what happened in the past. In other words, history seeks to answer the questions of cause and effect. What caused X historical event, and what effects did X historical event have on future historical events? History turns data about the past into a coherent narrative. And this is where historiography comes in. You know, facts are facts, fine. But which facts out of the whole sea of facts that exist is a particular historian going to choose to focus on? Because you couldn't possibly focus on them all. On what basis will the historian draw connections between these selected facts? And what conclusions or implications will the historian draw from these connections? All of this is open to interpretation and subject to much debate. So historiography doesn't so much focus on history itself, but rather how history is written. Obviously, the word being broken up into historio and graphy, meaning to write. So historiography, historiography means the study of how history is written. And there are actually a number of ways. A traditional way in which history is written has come to be known as the great man approach. And you'll be familiar with this one if you remember your school days, particularly if you're over the age of 30 and live in America. And the great man approach is exactly what it sounds like. Great historical and societal events are driven by great men. George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, FDR, General Patton, these willful, ambitious, strong men guide the course of history. They firmly grasp the wheel of the ship of state and steer it wherever they think it ought to go. The rest of us are just along for the ride. And so we tell myths about these great men in order to solidify their legendary status in the public mind. The one that I think of immediately is the George Washington cherry tree affair. And of course, you know the story. Little boy George Washington chops down a cherry tree, and then his father comes out and says, Where the hell's my cherry tree? And George Washington cannot tell a lie. Even though he's a young boy, he's still so virtuous and so wise, he says, Father, it was I. Whatever. Never really happened, but it serves a social purpose. As always, I exhort you to read Plato's Republic, because this is a noble lie. A myth meant to serve as social glue. Now, this method of historiography is actually really, really old. If you go back to the father of history, Herodotus, who lived in the 5th century BC, so like 2,500 years ago in ancient Greece, and you read his histories, which you probably should do, it's really good, you'll notice that he focuses on great men. Kings and emperors and the people who surround kings and emperors. These are the driving forces of history. These are the people who shape society. And it really shouldn't come as a surprise that someone like Herodotus would write a great man history. He was coming out of the pagan world. And if you look at the stories that he would have grown up with, like the Iliad and the Odyssey, 
and the dramas of Aeschylus and Euripides and Sophocles and the rest, you find that the Greek gods, who were these legendary, larger-than-life, immortal figures, were the driving forces of, well, pretty much every single thing that happened. The humans, as they said, were the playthings of the gods. The great man approach to history is largely mythic. It just ports who is the focus of the story, from the gods to these larger-than-life mortal men, kings and emperors and such. It's easy to see this transition from myth to history, and thus it's easy to understand why Herodotus might have told his history in the fashion he did. What may not be so easy to understand is why so many people still take the great man approach seriously today. Another historiographical approach is the social approach. In this approach, it's not great men who create history. Rather, it's the interaction between different sectors of society and the outcomes of these interactions which drive history. In other words, social forces create historical events. And if there are any great figures, these people are the products of these social interactions and social forces. Society creates them. They don't create society. And so, rather than focusing on these like strong military types, such as George Washington, the social historian is going to focus more on people like Martin Luther King Jr. or Ruth Bader Ginsburg, as these figures symbolize social evolution. Now, I've been out of high school for almost 10 years now, so I could be wrong about this, but this approach seems to have replaced the great man approach as the standard approach taken in common American history classes. Yet another, this one more specific, historiographical approach is what's called the materialist approach. This is the historiographical method of Karl Marx. The materialist historian sees social changes as being driven by material conditions of different social classes. So I can very quickly and crudely summarize how history is made according to this approach. A small minority within a society accrue the majority of available material resources, largely by exploiting the labor of the majority of people within the society. So the people do the work, and the small ruling class gets all the wealth. They reap the benefits. Now, because this small ruling class has a glut of materials, they become soft and lazy and cruel, while the exploited majority class grows angrier and angrier and angrier as they are further deprived of material resources which they need to survive and enjoy life. And so, as the materially wealthy class becomes gorged beyond a point of no return, the working class rises up, does whatever it is they need to do with the rulers, takes the resources, takes the materials, and distributes them amongst themselves in what they conceive to be a more appropriate, more equitable manner. Now, while the resource or material distribution in this new system may be more equitable than it was in the previous system, eventually the former revolutionaries become a new ruling class, and then the process has to occur again. But each time a revolution does occur, the situation grows more and more equitable. And according to Marx, who originally outlined the materialist historiographical approach, as this wheel of history turned, eventually we would all wind up in a communist utopia in which all resources, all materials were evenly and equitably distributed across the population. No more ruling class, 
no more exploited class, no more class distinction at all. Now, obviously, the materialist approach assumes something about history, namely that it's going somewhere. It's got a definitive ending point. Of course, in the materialist case, this would be the egalitarian communist utopia. But the materialist approach comes out of an even older approach, the progressive or Whig approach, and that's W-H-I-G. This is the belief that arose during the Enlightenment that history is progressing. It's getting better. As you look to the past, you find that conditions were worse, and as we look to the future, we find things getting better. Progressive or Whig history has it that history is not static. Moral and material conditions are naturally improving, specifically because of the human race's improving technology. This might be called the better living through science approach. In this thoroughly enlightenment approach to historiography, the destiny of the human race is placed firmly in the hands of the human race itself. So, as a side note, a kind of bridge between the general progressive historiographical approach and the more specific materialist approach is this dude Felipe Buonarroti. He was the first to suggest that the capitalist bourgeoisie society would give way to a socialist society, which would give way eventually and inevitably to the egalitarian communist utopia. And in order to facilitate this progress, Buonarroti was a member of a number of very interesting post-French Revolution secret societies. Also, beta trivia, Buonarroti was a direct descendant of the great Michelangelo, of Statue of David and Sistine Chapel ceiling fame. So, there are some common historiographical approaches. But there's another approach, just as, if not in some circles, more common. Yet this approach is rarely, if ever, talked about seriously. And in my opinion, that's a great shame, because it just might be the most sensible historiographical approach. Of course, I am referring to the conspiratorial approach. Now, I know, I know, I shudder at even uttering the word conspiratorial because of all of the connotations surrounding the concept of conspiracy in the modern age. Anything that even smells of conspiracy is ignored, mocked, or reviled. And then, of course, there are the genuinely crazy people who ruin it for all of us who are trying to actually study conspiratorial history seriously. So I want to make it clear that this is actually a legitimate historiographical approach. And I think I can do so pretty easily and pretty quickly, simply by defining some key terms. The conspiratorial approach is simply this. Major historical and social events, not all, but many, are planned and facilitated and carried out by small groups of powerful people. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that everything always goes 100% according to plan. It's very difficult to get things to go 100% according to plan all of the time. And it also doesn't mean that every single historical event was created and manufactured out of whole cloth by powerful people. But it does mean that even if an event happens organically, 
you probably won't have to dig too deep until you find some powerful people trying to get in on the action after the fact. Then, of course, there are things that are created out of whole cloth. It also doesn't mean that there's one monolithic conspiracy and that there's one final ultimate group that controls every single thing and that that's the plan and they're all in lockstep. No. What I'm saying is that powerful people will get together in order to pursue and preserve their interests. And these interests are often at odds with other groups of powerful people. It's not like they're all working together necessarily, at least not all the time. But oftentimes different factions of powerful people will square off against each other when their interests are at odds. So think about the mafia. It's like, okay, that term covers a vast number of people, and yet within the mafia, it's not like they're all part of the same crime family. There are different families with different interests, and often they'll battle with each other. Same goes for the powerful. I can refer to the powerful as a class of people. That doesn't necessarily mean that I'm saying they're all working towards the same ends, or are all working on the same projects, etc., etc. The underlying assumption of the conspiratorial approach is simply that people with power tend to want to keep their power, and so they'll do what they need to do in order to keep it. If the system, as it's currently set up, is keeping people in power, then those people are probably going to find it in their interest to maintain the status quo. Likewise, if other people think that a change in the system will grant them even more power than they already have, then it will be in their interests to change the system accordingly. It's simple. You know, a really great example of this can be found in the work of Carol Quigley, who wasn't some crackpot. He was a very, very well-respected professor of history at Georgetown University. He was the mentor to Bill Clinton. Yes, that Bill Clinton. And he wrote a couple of books, Anglo-American Establishment and Tragedy and Hope, A History of the World in Our Time, in which he talks about a legitimate conspiracy that actually did occur, and maybe, to some extent or another, is still occurring. I'll link to some resources on that in the show notes if you're interested in diving deeper into that very, very interesting and deep rabbit hole. But to summarize it very, very briefly, Quigley demonstrated conclusively that high-ranking agents of the British Empire way back at the end of the 1800s and early 1900s organized themselves into secret societies and then took control over international financial, corporate, and media organizations in order to organize the world as they saw fit. Incidentally, a very important part of this plan involved fostering a quote-unquote special relationship between America and Great Britain, effectively serving to reunite them and undo the separation between the two nations that occurred during the American War for Independence. Then American Anglophiles like Woodrow Wilson and Colonel Edward Mandel House secured America's entry into World War I on the side of the British, despite the American public's disinterest in that war and general disdain for all things British. Then, after the war, the British Royal Institute of International Affairs, which was set up and run by this cabal of elite imperialists, created an offshoot group in New York known as the Council on Foreign Relations, which Carol Quigley described as a front group for J.P. Morgan, which was one of the international financial organizations captured by this elite group. But I digress. The point is that this isn't just made-up malarkey. This is real history that just happens to not really be talked about all that much. 
And here we see what really should just be obvious. Powerful people get together to secure their interests. What's so crazy about that? Now, obviously, this doesn't mean that every single little thing has been planned from top to bottom 100% by elite groups of people. All I'm saying is that it's ridiculous that if you so much as raise the possibility of something maybe having some sort of elite involvement or planning aspect to it, you're shrugged off as a conspiracy theorist and no one takes you seriously. Huh. So I should say what I mean by power, because I've been throwing that term around a lot. So let me define my terms here. Power, that is political power as I'm using it, I think very simply refers to those individuals who have direct or indirect popular influence and control over resources. That's it. I really think that that's political power, direct or indirect popular influence and control over resources. The more of those two things you've got, the more power you've got. The less of those two things you got, the less power you got. Simple. Notice I didn't mention anything about voting or anything like that. And I also didn't mention anything about justice or virtue or goodness. Hell, elites will gladly tell you that things like virtue and justice and goodness don't even exist if it means they can snag some more power. Really, it just comes down to influence and resources. And so the question becomes, if you've got those two things, why wouldn't you use them to get more of those two things? I mean, who's in a better position to get more influence and resources than people with influence and resources? And who's in a better position to shape history, both in fact and in its perceptions, than those with influence and resources? I mean, come on, is this really that crazy? Now, I know someone's out there saying, yeah, yeah, that's all very quaint. But think of how many people would have to be in on a conspiracy for it to work. That's crazy. Well, to such a person, I would first of all say, no, that's actually not true. Large groups of people can, in fact, keep pretty big secrets. If you don't believe me, look up a little something called the Manhattan Project. If you do so, you'll learn just how big secrets are kept in large groups, specifically through something called compartmentalization, which is a very simple principle, which has it that any individual working within the process only knows about his or her part in the process, and maybe only knows one or two other people who are working on the larger project. So it's not like every random schmuck involved knows the whole plan and knows every piece of the plan or who's involved in the plan. You only know a tiny slice on a need-to-know basis, and this creates plausible deniability. Incidentally, this is also how the mob is structured. So to think such structures couldn't exist is wishful thinking and, quite frankly, pretty damn naive. But there's also another element to how a conspiracy works, and uh, this is maybe not as dramatic as the compartmentalization approach, but it's just as, if not more, important. The conspiracy is the culture. So what do I mean by this? I mean that certain sectors of society, certain influential and resourceful sectors of society, are closed off to those who lack the proper beliefs and attitudes. So, for instance, CNN or MSNBC or Fox isn't about to hire somebody who has questions about the official 9-11 commission report. 
not because these media corporations, at least the people on the lower levels of them, are involved in some way in a supposed 9-11 conspiracy, but rather because questioning 9-11, or really any official story, isn't a part of the institutional culture. Corporate, financial, and media institutions are funded by those with political power, and these institutions exist to secure the status quo and the interests of those in power. They're not about to turn on their funders and undermine those in power in any meaningful way. Because these institutions then influence the population, they effectively manufacture a culture which is amenable to the interests of those in power. The majority of people in the majority of institutions aren't knowingly in on any given conspiracy. Rather, by virtue of their ignorance, they serve the powerful, believing, in accordance with their institutional culture, that they're doing the right thing. Anybody who fundamentally challenges their cultural worldview is simply not given the time of day. So I best be wrapping this recording up. I hope I did an okay job of articulating what I'm trying to get across here. Maybe I'll touch on this subject in more detail in the future. I know this was sort of an off-the-cuff rant of an episode, but nonetheless, I wanted to just get this off my chest because it's something that's been bothering me for a really, really long time. I'll put some solid materials in the show notes that'll demonstrate that conspiratorial historiography is actually something to be taken seriously, particularly once you get past all the distracting, spaces-fake, reptilian kind of stuff. So I implore you to spend a good deal of time in the show notes and check out the list of materials that I've curated for you. There are some real gems in there, I promise. And as always, you can comment on this post at storyofnowhere.com, and you can contact me directly by email at storyofnowhere at mail.com if you would like to. Let me know if you want me to do a longer-form episode on this subject, although even if you don't tell me to, I might anyway. And of course, remember to check out the new episode of They Say at storyofnowhere.com slash they say four. Keep your eyes peeled for part two of The Realm of Isocrates with myself and Kevin Cole, the Agrarian Justice episode, the British Empire Golden Age myth episode, and of course, the much fabled Political Spectrum episode, all coming soon at storyofnowhere.com. As always, thank you for listening. Be sure to share this podcast with anyone you know who may be interested in this sort of thing. Subscribe at Podcast Addict, Spotify, or iTunes. Head over to storyofnowhere.com slash book to revisit my ebook, my audiobook, or to purchase a copy of the paperback version of my book if you're interested in helping out this operation. And of course, be sure to share that with anyone you know who may be interested as well. All right, that's all. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Secret Agent Man, Secret Agent Man, they're giving you a number and taking away your name. Beware of pretty faces that you find. A pretty face can hide an evil Oh
Lips. Odds are you won't live to see tomorrow. 